Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Welcome friends to Working in Yoga. This week on the podcast, I have a dynamic duo who have created a book together to answer the question that I think so many of us have after we first trained to be yoga teachers. What happens next? This what happens next question is what motivated me to create my own yoga professional development challenge that is free and coming out this July. The link is in the show notes. And we often need more guidance than we receive as yoga professionals. And if there are folks out there in the yoga landscape who are willing to guide us, the price for that advice is usually pretty steep. But not here. Cherry Fisher and Lori Holden have created a system that you can read about and incorporate into your own teaching. It gives you a guide to what happens next. Now here's what I hope you do when listening today. I hope you get ideas. I want you to be inspired. Sherry and Lori go through their whole methodology, but you can start by picking one thing to shift in your own teaching. Maybe it's a new signature thing, like those warm lavender and lemon scented towels at relaxation time that Lori tells us about. Or you decide to get better at making connections at your own yoga studio or class space. But pick just one thing and make a small intentional shift. One thing that they talk about is this idea that the most impactful teachers have the ability to listen to their inner voice, which is one of the things we will be talking about in our summer self-care series for yoga professionals. That series of solo podcasts of mine starts in July, and I can't wait to share some ideas on how we can deeply care for ourselves as yoga pros. But before we get into it, now is the time when I ask you to do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast. This is one of the most important metrics to help other yoga professionals find this podcast and connect with us. If you have been a longtime listener and love the content, I would also be grateful if you took 30 seconds to write Working in Yoga a review. And thank you to our sponsor, Sunlight Streams, the online self-care studio with webinars, audio classes, live classes, and videos on demand. Sunlight Streams is self-care in your pocket. Join us at our virtual retreat this July 28th through 30th, and I will be there hosting some of my self-care content and using my favorite teas to make mocktails with you at our mocktail hour. Grab your tickets and find out more at www.thesunlightexperience.com backslash online. Now, take a listen to my talk with Sherry and Lori. Welcome friends to Working in Yoga. Okay, so I'm really excited to have this conversation today. We're talking about one of my new favorite things to talk about, up-leveling the yoga profession and what happens next 
after you're trained to be a yoga teacher. So I have my two friends, Sherry Fisher and Lori Holden from Root to Rise Yogis here. And I would love it if you would both introduce yourselves. Now I'm gonna start with Sherry first. You might remember that Sherry was on the podcast previously with two of my other favorites, John Cottrell and Allison Russell, talking about collaboration amongst yoga professionals. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and do that because even when I was listening, I was taking notes and I was there for the conversation. <laughs> so Sherry, please introduce yourself. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for having us on your show today. My name is Sherry Fisher. I have been a life coach since 2007. In 2010, I did my 200 hour yoga teacher training in hot power vinyasa. And then more recently in 2021, I completed my 300 hour um, yoga teacher training as well. And in the midst of all that, I got my master's degree in transpersonal psychology and raised three young boys who are now young men. And I am one of the co-founders of the Root to Rise Yoga Teaching Method with my sister, Lori Holden. And we've written a book called Standing Room Only, How to Be That Yoga Teacher. And our purpose with that is to help yoga teachers take all of the tools and techniques that they learn in their yoga teacher trainings and dive a little bit deeper, actually a lot deeper, so that they can bridge that gap between coming out of a yoga teacher training and feeling confident and being able to teach extraordinary classes with both ease and grace. Thank you. How about you, Lori? Will you come say hi and tell us about yourself? Yeah, thank you for having us, Rebecca. And it's so great to be able to speak with um, your audience. Um, my name is Lori Holden. One thing Sherry didn't mention is that we are partners in the Root to Rise Yoga Teaching Method, and we are also sisters. I won't say which one is older because being older is really cool for the first 20 years and not so much after that. And it might be me. <laughs> I have been practicing yoga for about 17 years um, and like so many I started because I needed a physical fix to my life and over the last 17 years it has become so much more than that and the physical part is actually one of the lower rungs on the ladder and it just has given me so much of a way to live my life a way to parent my children a way to navigate um, all that life brings to you um, so I am not a yoga teacher, but I'm a connoisseur of amazing yoga teachers, and I've been very blessed to um, have so many of them in my life, including Sherry. And um, so we really wanted to kind of try to up-level the yoga teaching profession with this methodology that we have um, come up with, um, the five pillars of powerful teaching in the Root to Rise Yoga Teaching Method. Okay, so I love this, and I'm going to dive right into it because there is, and I said this before I hit record and immediately thought, oh, I should have been recording that. <laughs> so I'll say it again. But like, I feel like we're in this kind of uncomfortable up leveling as a profession, as we're sort of lifting ourselves into an industry that has, you know, 60 billion plus dollars per year that we're generating. Now, Lori, you said you had been learning for 17 years. I've been teaching for over 20. Like, I remember those days, the days when and I have wild stories, you know, I taught at like a place that where there were livestock auctions and all kinds of wild stuff before studios were everywhere. Um, but we're up leveling now and you two have brought this method that I want to kind of dive into because it's what happens next. 
this is the thing I hear from yoga teachers all the time. They've done this 200 hour training. They're so passionate about yoga. There's some reason that they felt called to do this training, but now what? Now they feel like they loved the training. They're excited to teach and they're also terrified at how they're going to build a business, be effective communicators, like all of the things that happen within the job, like we're really terrible about professional development. So your methodology is essentially professional development 101. So tell me a little bit about that. Like how did, how did you get inspired to do this? So I do think one of the key things that you said is professional development. I started teaching group fitness in the 1990s, probably about the time you started to teach yoga. And it was, I just looked at it as a part-time gig. I went and I did a weekend certification and cause I was just a, um, a fitness enthusiast. And then they threw me out on the floor and I started teaching and I tried to teach the way I thought great teachers taught. And then as I rolled into um, the yoga teacher training that I did in 2010, I had learned a lot. That's a lot of years of stumbling and failing and, you know, kind of failing forward and growing. But I, I figured that it's not just a part-time gig anymore. Now we have this 200 hour format that we're looking at to even teach. And, and at that time, studios were starting to require that you had that level of teaching. So I think one of the key things you're saying is we as yoga teachers need to see ourselves as professionals. And it's not just something that you go in and you jump in and take a weekend certification. You, that's the first step is taking your 200 hours. I do think that there is this desire. I think it comes from um, feeling like you're not quite ready because probably you're not quite ready. And then another uh, teaching um, opportunity, another training opportunity comes up and you think, oh, well, maybe that's what I need is more information. And so there can be this addiction towards, I wanna to learn more, I wanna learn more, but I still don't know how to apply it. And so the Root to Rise Yoga teaching method is our way of helping people apply it. And it started because I was working within the fitness industry and I was doing workshops for teachers and personal trainers about the pillars of powerful, at the time it was called instruction. I think there's a difference between an instructor and a teacher and yoga teaching really elevates it from just moving people through physical shapes into the entire way that we hold space as we're putting together our classes. And so I went through some exercises with these professionals that I was teaching, these uh, fitness instructors, yoga teachers. And I asked them questions like, what makes a great class, a great fitness class, a great yoga class? And I had them list traits of the class and of the teacher. And then I said, well, what about what makes a marginal class? And we had a group discussion, what makes a class not so great? And then also I asked them to try it on from a teaching perspective. What makes a great class that you have taught? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What have you added into it? And what makes a marginal class? And that might be like, well, I got stuck in a line at the carpool and da, 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 and I was late and I ran in and it just wasn't the class that I had thought. And so we put up all of these traits and we started to piece them out and they came into these five natural categories. And it, those are the five pillars of powerful teaching. And so that's communication, character, connection, commitment, and consideration. And that's the foundation of the Root to Rise teaching method and what we've outlined in the book, Standing Room Only, how to be that yoga teacher. I love this. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you all dive into your pillars in a moment. But one thing that you said that I really wanna highlight is this idea that 
we really do have to reflect on what is different between what a student experiences and what we the teacher experience when we're teaching now i tell the story all the time because it's just so universal right of this idea that you walk into a yoga class and you're just like on you know like you've got this thing and you're like yeah i'm gonna tell them about the stuff and their lives are gonna be changed and then everybody walks out and they're like thanks see you later and then you're like oh and then that one class where, like you said, you know, you got stuck in traffic, your socks don't match, you have no idea. Like on Monday, I totally was at my studio and forgot I was subbing for a teacher and everybody in the room's like, why are you not here yet? I'm like, oh, hold up. Here I am. <laughs> and then they all came out. They were like, that was an amazing class. Because how we feel is so is is different than how the students feel and you y'all have really bridged this gap because we're always inserting ourselves into this like oh you know I didn't feel prepared so it wasn't a good class but. Okay, so Laura i'm gonna have you tell me about the pillars a little bit more talk about the first couple pillars and why those are included in the methodology. yeah let me let me say first something to your point about when we are trying to get. I'm a teacher in other arenas. I'm a social studies teacher and I'm an adoption educator. So even though I'm not a yoga teacher, I understand that magic you're talking about when you do deliver something that really reaches people and resonates for people. And to your point about how if you're not quite at the comfort level, you just want to acquire more knowledge. That is a normal thing to want to do. But what we have tried to do in our um, ritualized yoga teaching method is to really embody in our bodies this yoga this idea of yoga with rooting to rise and so in going inside to to be able to flourish externally rather than i mean we this is one of the both ends of yoga right we need that content knowledge we need to know the philosophy we need to know the poses we need to know anatomy all of those things but we also need to know ourselves and when that authenticity from self-reflection self-examination when that has happened that we think is the magic secret sauce that makes the difference between um an adequate yoga teacher and that yoga teacher that just consistently can deliver all those things because they're in their bodies they're in their yoga they're living it they're walking it because they've done this internal work not just the external work so um, yeah, well, we can talk about our, our pillars. Our, our first pillar is communication, and that is effectively communicating with your students, um, whether that's cueing, um, showing how to do things, telling how to do things. Um, Sherry, would you like to say any more about that or move on to character? I wanna throw in, so a lot of it is, remember communication is two way. So I am the sender and I deliver a message. I put it together in a format that makes sense to me and I want to deliver it to the, let's say the students in my classes. So it takes into account different ways that people learn. We all have different learning methodologies, something that works best for us. I may hear the information and it makes sense to me. I may need to see it. I may need to experience it. I may need to read it. So really taking into account how people learn and how people receive information and also understanding your target audience. So if your students, so here's a, an example that we talk about in the book. If I am teaching somebody, a group of people how to make a sandwich. My delivery is going to be different if I'm working with kindergarten kids 
or with cafeteria line cooks because my languaging needs to be different. The way I describe how to do it needs to be different. So we have to take into account who's in our classes. And so communication being the first pillar is it's, it's everything that you do to bring that communication back and forth, not only in what you say, but also remember it's a feedback system. Your students are also telling you that makes sense to me because they're with you, or that doesn't make sense. I don't know which side you're on. And so communication is like a foundational pillar of powerful teaching. Okay, so I'm gonna pause our regularly scheduled program to say one thing to all you yoga professionals out there that you all have that I'm a big advocate of. I need you to find an educator friend, Lori, <laughs> the educator friend, the people who are trained to teach people to understand different learning styles, as Sherry mentioned so eloquently, like, like that is such important knowledge for us to have as yoga professionals, how to teach people a thing anything sandwiches yoga underwater basket weaving like they're going to be visual learners auditory learners people who are learning through experience like all those methods are different and how do we cover that in a class go find an educator and get nerdy with them okay back to our regularly scheduled program where we talk about character <laughs> let me let me just put a point on what Sherry said about communication. It, um, that really important piece is that it's two way. It's not just what you're communicating yeah. to your students. It's also at the front of the room or wherever you are in the room, being able to absorb what they're communicating to you, knowing where to put your attention. Yeah. And one other part, and we put this in the book, we did some research, only about 7% of communication is verbal. The other 93% is everything else. And so it is important what you say, how you cue, um, and the, the words that you use, but it's so much more. And so to your point, Rebecca, go ask a, a, a teacher about communication and learning abilities and learning styles. It will elevate you just by having that conversation. Yes, 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 yes. And communication studies people, because that's me. <laughs> That was my major in college it was communication studies i love the idea of just being able to like figure out how we express what we're expressing to the humans in front of the room like it's that's truly to me teaching versus instructing right as you said that is teaching is being with the humans in the room with us and being like you said so character is our second pillar here like being that good character so talk a little bit more about what character means um I, I have a good idea, but I, I want to hear it from you all. <laughs> well, it definitely means being having good character as a yoga teacher. The way we use it as the second pillar of powerful teaching is this is setting the tone and feel for the classes that you teach. And so it's everything else that you wrap around the instructions that you're giving to move people through their poses. So it can be things like greeting them at the front door. It can be showing them where the uh, extra mats and towels are. It can be the lighting within the room. It can be the temperature of the room. It can be, are the shades open or closed? Do you have um, a singing bowl that you use at the end? Do you introduce a theme? So anything that makes it more than just an exercise class is character and character. And, and so if I were to say to either of you, Rebecca or Lori, what are some of the things that really make a yoga class? The answers that you would give me, which I'm curious what you would say, that's character. So Rebecca, what would you say elevates a class for you? What I am always looking for 
for. And what I'm talking about and thinking about is how my yoga teacher runs the room. The, the presence that they bring to the table is literally for me what I hire from. It is what I'm looking for when I'm, an, when I'm a learning, when I'm not instructing. It is just, you know, not to put a sort of new agey point on it, but it's the energy you bring to the room. Yes, it's presence, it's essence. Yes. And it's back to what Lori was talking about, the root to rise method. It, to me, an, an excellent class comes from somebody who's delivered it authentically. They've been doing their work and they've been rooting. And so as they show up, even if they mess up a sequence, even if their music isn't working, the essence and the energy is still there. And that to me is character. It is that question often that I think I hear from yoga teachers who are early teachers is this idea that somebody comes in the room and they're disruptive, right? So they're not following your sequence. They're not doing what you say. They're maybe not doing what you're hoping or thinking all of the students in the room should be doing. And somebody asked me one time about that. They said, okay, have we ever had that happen? I said, yeah, there was a lady who would pay me her money and stand in the middle of the room and literally do nothing. I said, like nothing. Like we would be in Shavasana and she would be doing inversions. And the students after class, they would say, well, doesn't that bother you? And I'm like, no, I know who's running the room. Nobody's paying attention to her. They're like, well, she's strange. She's not doing the thing, but I know who I'm learning from. Right. And, and that's, it also is our expectations in coming into teaching yeah. and remembering that each person has their little piece of real estate, their mat is there and they come for different reasons. And so if you are, if you're resisting this person in the room and you're agitated by it, your students will also resist and be agitated. If you accept it in and you're like, that's interesting. And I hope she's getting what she wants out of her practice. And you go on and serve everybody in the room then that to me is teaching. Yeah. That is the, the essence of character. Yeah. Lori, you had something to say? Yeah, when I, when I answer that question you asked Sherry about character and what does that mean um, as from a student's perspective, I'm thinking almost like the word signature is coming to mind. When I think of that yoga teacher, that I would go wherever they are, <laughs> whatever time they're teaching a class, it's the ones that have developed their kind of signature style. Yes. Um, one of the teachers that that I have in my life is um, he always offers at the end um, warm lavender lemon scented cloths during Shavasana. And that's a small thing, but it's his consistent thing, um, but it's a sensory thing. It, 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 um, it's something we can always rely on. Another one, a teacher I have, she'll sometimes bring in um, uh different seasons and um like the uh I, the celtic moon cycles and what those mean and she'll bring in astrology and and even if people aren't always into those i like that aspect that she brings in that i don't get other places so that kind of signature piece of bringing your unique you into the room and people know what that there's a definition to that a signature to that and when you do that, I do think your students feel more connected to you. There's that connection aspect that that comes from whatever your signature is. Now, I don't think for anybody listening, like, I don't have a signature. I don't have that thing yet. Like, you can find it. You can also find it 20 times. Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you can, you're not hooked into one particular thing. You know, what I'm teaching now in my studio is very different than what my signature class was for a decade. But 
you know, I teach movement and mindset. And so now like, it doesn't matter what pose I'm in. I'm only talking about mindset and how we can find mindset through yoga poses. That's what I'm doing now. It's I, you're, you're, but you're bringing what you want to, to the table. Like you said, with that sort of character and then the connection we make with our students. Yeah. And the difference between a, your signature and your character and a gimmick is, does it come from the inside? Is yeah. it something that you need to manifest or is it something you're trying, trying to do to, to, um, I don't know, kind of catch people or something. It needs to come from inside out. Yeah. It's not a show that we're putting on. In fact, I think that that part of your rising as a teacher comes from your own path. So let's say something, um, I'm working on something in my life, in my personal life, and I can bring that in as a quote, something that I, it's very much coming from uh, what I'm going through myself, that authenticity rings clear. I'm not putting on a show. I'm not using special music or whatever. Um, it's not gimmicky. And I would say to the new or newer yoga teachers, start small. Don't make it complicated. Keep it as simple as possible. It can be one quote that you start and you end with, and maybe you mention it in the middle. Don't confuse yourself by trying to be all of that when you are starting here, take little tiny baby steps, because if you don't, you're going to frustrate yourself. You're going to stumble and it's, it's going to be hard and it shouldn't be hard. Yeah. Let's talk about this connection then that, that, that brings with your students and with your practice. So connection is the next pillar. Tell me what that means to you all. So we, there are several different levels of connection. So connection is the third pillar and connection starts with connection to yourself. So we talk in there about meditation and using your intuition, tuning in and trusting and how you can do that. So that connection piece goes into that rooting part of the root to rise yoga teaching method. And then we talk about connecting with your students. So knowing their names, um, understanding more about their lives. Hey, you were out of town last week. How was your vacation? making sure it's kind of like the cheers analogy. You walk in and people know who you are. They understand you, they get you, that connection. And then I also um, think it's important to connect students with other students. Hey, Rebecca, I want you to meet this other student, Lori. Uh, Lori's new to town and I know that you both love biking. So I was just wanted, I just wanted to make sure that I connected the two of you. Because I think when you get to the core of why people keep coming to class, it's because of the connection that they, that they feel. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to be an extrovert and you need to walk around and greet everybody on their mats. Sometimes it's silent. Sometimes it's you walk into the room and the energy brings in that connection. So connecting students with students. It's also connection between the teachers and their fellow teachers. Understanding that when I ask for a, a sub, you're able to help me. I understand that you have three kids and I'm happy to help when you have these issues, you know, whatever that is. So connection, connection with your studio management, management and owners, and then connection to the community at large. And so it's all of that, because I think the connection is this magnetic energy that draws people in. And from a teacher's perspective, that's how you get people to come back to your classes. From a studio's perspective, it's retention, which translates into more um, a bottom, a higher bottom line. But it's it it retains good teachers. It retains the students. I mean, it connection is like that the glue in the middle. It's that interconnective tissue. I have to tell you that you've just like outlined my employee manual because this is something that is really like I've built a studio around this, like this idea that we have to be fostering connections 
not just between us and the students, but with each other. And for us, it's the simple thing of, and this is like literally in my manual, like you introduce someone new to everyone else in the room. You just say, hey, everyone, this is Adrian. Adrian's new here. Adrian, this is Kathy. She's going to tell you where all your stuff goes because, you know, we all have those students, those people. And then immediately, like my students in the studio are then connecting with and checking in on those new folks. Like, frankly, A, that's good business. <laughs> B, that's good yoga. Like, that's how we should be operating the amount of studios and spaces that I'm sure we've all walked into that have acted like they've done you a favor by letting you in the door. Like, you know, they're like that teenage, you know, like if you have a teenage daughter who's trying to like be cooler than you and not connect, like, like they're like a teenager. And I think that's so strange. Like then, then we have these broken people coming in going, I thought every yoga studio was mean. And that's the opposite of what yoga is. Yoga it's is true. all inclusive. And it's just like you said, Rebecca, it is running our business of yoga as a business. There is value in customer service. We yes. do want to see people as people and not just the, the people we're serving, but the people we work with. All of those connections to me are the core of yoga. Dear God, learn people's names, y'all. Like... <laughs> The, the amount of money that I have made on learning people's names, let alone it's just good practice to know who's in your room. But again, the amount of times I've heard people say, I took a, a class with so-and-so for months, I don't think she knew my name. You know, it was a self-check-in situation or they had someone in the lobby. And, and I'm just like, that's, I make more money than you because I know their name. <laughs> I, I think there's a quote um, and it's about that a person's name is like music to their ears because it is the, it's the sound that we have heard from the second we were born. The second that somebody said your name is, it became a connection to the rest of the world. And I have a, a I just moved to um, Frisco, Colorado and I go to a hot yoga studio here. And all of the teachers have been great about knowing my name, but there's one that I was probably, her name's Kelly. I was probably in her class twice and she has bigger classes. And then she saw me on the street during the winter and I had a winter coat on, a hat on, I had sunglasses on and I had my dog with me. So I didn't look like my yoga person that walks into the studio. She said, hi, Sherry, how's your day today? She knew me. And you know what? That meant so much to me. And I just, I was just telling her about it the other day. I said, that really meant a lot to me that you, you from the very first time I came into your class, you called me by name. Being seen is such a gift we can give to people. So I'm going to ask you, Lori, to talk about commitment a little bit, which is that fourth pillar. Um, this is the, the thing we are sometimes struggle with as an industry. <laughs> and I'm chuckling because we've all had that time where somebody's come to a studio and the teacher didn't show up. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about commitment. Yeah, like so many, so much else in the Ritualized Yoga teaching method, commitment starts from the inside out. So starting with a commitment to yourself, um, which means having your own yoga practice aside from your yoga teaching practice. Like Sherry just said, she still takes, she's taking, taking yoga classes because that's self-care, right? That's true self-care. That's not, not a pedicure and not a bubble bath. That's true self-care. Um, so, um, commitment to yourself, to your own ongoing, 
um, education about yoga, diving deep sometimes, extending yourself sometimes. Um, that reaches out into um, commitment to your students, showing up when you um, when you have committed to, um, showing up in ways for your fellow teachers, uh, like Sherry said previously about how to um, make sure that you're willing to cover when when you can and when it's necessary, um, helping people out with in, in the studio with um, making sure the studio is in, in good shape, towels, um, just all the all the duties that are beyond just the between the beginning and the end of a class. <clears throat> so I'll add, I'll add into that. Oh, a couple yeah. So um, commitment to your students. It's also it is continuing education. And I'm not saying seeking education just for more info, but it's, for example, um, I had in 2010, we had an anatomy section and I was, I've always been interested in it and never truly studied it. And then as we, the last, let's say 13 years have happened since 2010, there's been a lot of things that have happened in the world of anatomy and yoga and understanding that the the actual shapes of the asana of the poses were for 14 year old boys and how different bodies i can't do triangle the way you can do triangle because of my body is differently shaped than yours and so for me taking that extended um, education was extremely helpful for me and it also is a commitment to my students because i want to teach safe classes so it's things like that it's getting my cpr certification it's having insurance so all of those things that help me also commitment to myself as a yoga teaching professional and seeing ourselves as professionals and doing the work that we need to do to continue to show up for our students. So there's, there's a lot of layers to commitment. And one other thing is the commitment from teachers to the studio. If I come in, I turn on the lights, I teach and I leave. That's, yes, I showed up for my class. But what else is there? If I'm a student in, in your class and let's say somebody's knocking at the front door, I, as your fellow teacher, can say, Rebecca, I've got this. I can go out and open the front door or tell the person whatever, and then come back in so you can continue to deliver your class. So it's, there's so much commitment. And we also talk about commitment from the studio back to the teachers. And what does that look like? What does that support look like? What can we expect? And we talk about the difference between being an independent contractor versus having employees. And so we really tried to reach all the way around, what does commitment need, mean in the world of yoga? Yeah, ooh, I like that conversation you're having about independent contractors versus employees. No, oddly, I'm shocked I haven't had that conversation on this podcast at all because I feel very strongly <laughs> about a lot of it. Now, my in my studio, all of my staff, all of my teachers are employees. Um, and there is also an up leveling I think we as studio owners need to be doing um, for years being in a profession where we could slide under the radar. Nobody was really paying attention to us. I mean, we've heard the stories of the massive yoga studios that were there was one last year that was sued because they were um, essentially laundering money and they were having people like slide cash into Kleenex boxes <laughs> and all kinds of wild craziness. I mean, a really a, a well-known studio on the East Coast. And like, we have to up-level, I think, as studio owners too. So I'm glad you're addressing that as well. There's a chart in the book I, I um, 
consulted with somebody uh, that's an attorney and we just broke down what does it mean to be an independent contractor like what types of things can you require or not require from your teachers versus an employee and what are some of the benefits of each and there's even some controversy right now yoga alliance has been doing some webinars on um, there's been some legislation about independent contractors and can they really be held to can you say you can only have independent contractors and and how yoga studios have maybe blurred that line just a little bit and so again in this book it's not a resource for that and really all of the stuff that's in this book is to open the conversation about it so i think it's great that you're thinking about and having conversations about something that's really important from a business perspective as a yoga teacher do you want to be an independent contractor and what comes along with that or do you want to be an employee and what comes along with that yeah, I mean, that chart alone sounds like the worth the price of admission here for this book. I'm going to be honest with you, because that is really, I mean, for years before I, I'm, I'm a newer studio owner, right? So I opened in 2019 and, and worked for well over a decade and a half and a half as an independent contractor. So I know what it is to be that independent contractor who is driving to the 5.30 a.m. class and the 8 a.m. class, and then you're eating your granola and yogurt in the car, and then you're gonna hit noon, and then you're maybe gonna nap because you gotta get back there for the 4.30, the 6 p.m., the 7.30s, so that you can build your business and, and how you're treated so differently from one place to another, to another, what people expect from you. And, and really, we need to have clear boundaries around that as an industry, because frankly, that's part of our up level. And, and one, other, one other thing to talk about, um, Lori, and then I'll let, let you talk too, is in this, in this particular pillar, and it's underneath the commitment to yourself as a yoga teaching professional, we have a whole section on how to get hired as a yoga teacher. So it talks about how to look at what you bring to the table. How do you show up to do an audition? How do you um, talk about your features, advantages, and benefits? So there's this whole section in there to help you understand as a yoga teaching professional, how can you step into this role? How can you land the job at the studio that you want? And I'm just so pleased, Rebecca, to hear your enthusiasm for this commitment section uh, specifically as a studio owner, because just like the first pillar communication is two ways between yoga teacher and yoga student, this fourth pillar commitment is also two way between yoga teacher and um, yoga studio owner. Yeah, I think it has definitely been something that teachers, yoga teachers have not been the only ones who have been hesitant to embrace professionalism. I think studio owners have as well. And it is also our job because now we hold pretty much how, how we've developed as an industry as studios own the key to the industry. I mean, what happened when I first started teaching in the very, very early 2000s was that, like I said, I could teach anywhere. I could teach at a library, I could teach at a church basement, I've taught at basements of chiropractic clinics, livestock auction spaces, like a whole host of spaces. And students didn't care because the expectation was for the yoga, not for a studio. That's not the case. We don't exist in that industry anymore. We exist in an industry where students expect to walk into a space. It's gonna look a certain way, it's gonna feel a certain way, they're going to expect the floors to be clean. They're going to expect all of these things because that's how the industry has developed. Studio owners have to answer that as well. We have to be professionals, just like we expect our teachers to be. 
And I think in the area you're talking about, there's been an evolution of studio owners is that, um, and this goes back and it's my perception, but let's say 15 years, I, I saw that people started yoga studios because they loved yoga. Yeah. And because I love yoga, I want to share it and get as many people in here to enjoy yoga too. And then throughout the evolution of yoga as a profession, as you were talking about, now these people who love yoga are learning business and now they're running a yoga business. And so there's been that evolution as well. And I don't think that we're done evolving. I think it's going to be a continual thing. And I, I think it's important for us as yoga professionals, no matter where we are showing up on that spectrum, to continue to see ourselves as professionals. Yes. And it's not going to be comfortable necessarily. This isn't an easy evolution. We've hit puberty. It's awkward. Our joints feel weird. We've got acne. Our voice is changing. Like all that we've hit puberty and that's okay. Like, like we have to be with each other in that sort of like puberty phase that we're in right now. I mean, I'm excited to see if we have this conversation again in 10 years, I'll be thrilled to see what happens, you know, as we're like mid to late teenagers. <laughs> as you were talking about adolescence and puberty, I'm like, and then you insert in the, in, into that a timeout called COVID. <laughs> I, I know, right? I mean, COVID has changed the game. We could, I, I do definitely want to get to the last pillar, but also, I mean, if COVID has changed the game for us dramatically and not all in bad ways, you know, I mean, there was. Has happened from COVID, there is fewer of us, but I, it's interesting. And, and I'll be curious, we'll talk about that at the end, but I do want to get to consideration because well, I think this just, is also a really important. Let me say thing. one other thing with COVID. I think what we saw in COVID too was a lot of people, their only option was to do online teacher trainings. And so that's also a place where the Root to Rise Yoga teaching method could come in is let's talk about if you've been trained online, I did my 300 hour online. It was excellent. And if you come out of, let's say your first 200 hour and it was during COVID, you may not have the interaction of them. You have the mechanics, but you may not have the finesse. And so the Root to Rise Yoga teaching method can really help with that. Nice. Okay, let's talk consideration. Sherry, tell us a little bit about that methodology or that pillar, I should say, of the methodology. So when I was doing those workshops for the fitness studios and the health clubs and such, there were only four pillars of powerful teaching, the first four. Consideration did not exist at that time. Um, I, I met Gina Caputo, who's a big yogi um, from Boulder, Colorado. She was in Salt Lake doing a workshop and I went to her workshop and I introduced myself afterwards and I told her about this book that we were writing and I asked her if she would consider writing the forward. And she said, I'm absolutely open to that, but I need to see the book to make sure that it's in line with my philosophy. And so we sent her the book. And she was so gracious. She, she said, this absolutely lines up with my philosophy. I'm happy to help you with the forward, but I do think that there's one pillar that you're really missing the boat on. And that's um, under diversity, equity, and inclusion, the DEI component. And she, so that's where the fifth pillar consideration came from. And then Gina did write a beautiful forward for us. She also met with us about once a month for about a year. And she really helped us refine who's our target audience and what are their needs? Because she, at the time, was doing so, so much teaching, teaching of teachers, and she still does that, but now she's moved into whole health coaching. And so she's just a lovely, um, very upbeat personality. If you don't follow her on social media, I would absolutely recommend it. 
Um, but that's where that fifth pillar came from. And so it's teaching all students with, com with compassion in diverse and meaningful ways. And so in here, we wanted to talk about um, I do uh, a lot of breakdowns. This one, this this pillar took the most research for me. So I talk about the differences between race and racism and pri uh, privilege and pre prejudice. So all of the things that were starting to come out in normal conversations and everyday conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also in our field, things like athletic abilities, size and shape, flexibility, strength. Um, you know, all of the things that that come into play. And then I also interviewed Jen Armstrong Solomon, and she is an expert in trauma informed and trauma sensitive yoga. And so I interviewed her and we talk about what are the differences between those and what are some things that you as a yoga teacher can do from a trauma informed standpoint in your classes. What does trauma sensitive mean and how does that up the level of being sensitive and what populations might you be serving there? And so the input from all of that was really helpful because I'll tell you in 2010 when I took my yoga teacher training and it was an excellent training, I didn't even hear the words diversity, equity, and inclusion. We didn't talk about consideration. Um, and so this is also another evolving thing that I think um, needs to come from a place of curiosity from a yoga teacher's perspective to learn some of the basics and continue to learn and integrate and weave it into the classes that you teach. Maury, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, in addition to this um, pillar taking so much research because we, maybe this doesn't show on the audio of this podcast, but we are two white women. So um, we, we built a lot of tools into this pillar to uncover our blind spots because we were doing it. There's so much we don't see moving through the world as white, abled women. Um, so just that deep dive, the rooting that we had to do in order to produce this chapter and create this chapter um, or this section, it was, um, there was a lot of rooting. I just wanted to say, we, we did a lot of our own work, um, probably more on this pillar than anything else. I think most definitely when we're diving deep into sort of anti-racist work and social justice forward work, um, as you're calling DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, in that consideration part, it is our work first as, as, as white folks to be doing that work and to really be able to stand a in our own work and be be able to stand in our constant evolution of that work that you don't just know and then don't learn anything else so like I, I like that you have mentioned both of you on more than one occasion during this interview like this is an evolution, this is a path we're constantly evolving. Um, I recently recorded a solo podcast about consent. And this idea of what what is it that our students are consenting to when they walk in the door and you know for you know if you were around in the industry in 2016 2017 it was super hot on like where your hands were and the flip chips and all those sort of consent cards but now consent is evolving like what are people consenting to be spoken to in our class like are they really consenting to your, you know, Dharma talk on the environment? Maybe, but maybe not like, like we were evolving conversations all the time. And I really think like in this commitment pillar, that seems like very apparent that we're evolving conversations about DEI accessibility within the yoga space. So I love that part of this. 
And I think it is a start. If yes. they read the, this fifth pillar consideration, it gives them a, a starting point to begin to look for blind spots, to ask more questions, to get feedback. Was, how was this class? Was this class accessible for you? Is there anything else that I could do that could make it more accessible? Maybe it's a very tall person and they need a very long mat, or maybe they need different size of blocks. I mean, really from a yoga teacher's perspective, how can we deliver our classes to each and every student that comes in and understanding that there's individuals that are here that need attention, but we're also, teaching to the entire class and where is the balance of that? Yeah, and don't be afraid to learn from people who are different than you. So we are three white women here on this podcast, but there are so many people of color out there doing this work who you can go and seek their resources out. You can go seek out accessible yoga. You can seek out disability forward yoga teachers. You can seek out so many different people, people who might look, feel, have different backgrounds than you go learn from them. Like we are all in this industry together and we are so much better served when we're a rich tapestry of humans versus what yoga has frankly been for a very long time, which is thin able-bodied white ladies who are of upper middle-class standing. <laughs> and if I can just be responsible enough to highlight a couple of those diverse resources that we drew on and this will be an ever-changing landscape, but the Yoga is Dead podcast, there were just six episodes that um, really started us on the path of trying to figure out where our blind spots are and, and continue to be, because like you say, it's an evolution. And also Susanna Barkataki is another one um, whose, whose teachings can really help fill in some of those, those gaps that, that I have. And Michelle Johnson with Skill in Action. Um, we really, Lori and I just, we were trying to scour as many resources as possible to widen where our blind spots are. And we still recognize we have huge blind spots, but really this, everything in this book, I, I don't profess to be the excellent yoga teacher. I am a student of teaching and I was studying how to best teach. And that's where all of this came from. But I think the core of this book and all five pillars is to open the conversation because we will learn better collectively than if I just do all the studying and you do all your studying. Like you said, the diversity among us is what adds richness to the tapestry. And that's how collectively as a yoga teaching profession, we're all going to get better. And I will also do my due diligence and add Jacoby Ballard to the name to our list if you are um, in the queer community. Also, please go follow Accessible Yoga and Jeevana Heyman's work, especially if you um, are a disability activist, if you come to your yoga practice with a disability of any kind, Jeevana and his team are doing amazing work in that community. It's an ongoing process. and and. I also, and you'll see this in the book and being a, a, a professional coach and a life coach, it's action steps. So I would challenge your listeners, if let's say consideration is something that you haven't ever really thought about, maybe this year you challenge yourself to listen to some of these podcasts, read some of these books, take some of these trainings. Maybe it doesn't mean that you are going to teach that style of yoga, but what can you learn from it that you can come back and integrate it into every class that you teach for your general population. Yeah, and a lot of these folks really teach online too. You know, so you can really, there's so many resources on the internet, there's so many resources on Instagram. I mean, I'm thinking of yoga philosophy. Um, Dr. Raghunathan is, is teaching yoga philosophy. Like so many people are teaching online that really 
this knowledge has been at our fingertips in ways that has never before been. So we're very lucky to be living in this time and building this sort of evolution of our careers where we are able to learn from so many people and then incorporate everyone within the industry. So yes. Talk about connection, right? We, right. That we can do this today be right. connected with each other. It's wonderful. Okay, so um, I wanted, I wonder if you have any final words for those new teachers who are just coming out, who are trying to figure out, like, I'm sure, I'm sure, Sherry, you remember, like, you're, you're trying out, you're trying everything, you know, you've got two people coming to your class, or you're trying to figure out how to be that yoga teacher. What are our first steps? And what words of encouragement do you have? Because it's so awkward those first years. <laughs> it truly is. And I empathize and I do remember what it feels like when you get out. It's almost like you're in this yoga teacher training and it's this comfy little cozy little heated nest. And you've got these um, trainers that are holding your hands and they're answering every single question. And you've got these co-students that you're learning with and you're supporting each other. And then you graduate and you've worked so hard. And then it's sort of like you're spit out of the nest. You know, it's like, good luck and goodbye. And, and so I, I think of it this way. If when, when we were coming across as, as Americans, we're moving across the plains and I moved from New England to let's say California. And I, I noted where all the rivers were and here's a really bad um, place that you're, you're never gonna be able to cross and here's a canyon. And I sent back a map to you in New England and I said, here's some things to look out for. Here's a, the easier way to go, here's the harder way to go. The standing room only how to be that yoga teacher is the map from me as I've, I've gone across that abyss from graduating from my 200 hour to where I am right now. And I'm saying here is a map. It is not the map. It is a map for you to learn from what I have done to help you make that step forward even easier. And I will also say, I was talking to um, another student in the studio the other day, and she um, had taken her yoga teacher training with somebody who was actively teaching at this studio. And she said, um, I took the yoga teacher training at the same time that this other teacher did. She's the, the other teacher is teaching. I am not. She said, it's been three years since my yoga teacher training. And I'm still, I, I don't feel like I have all the tools. I don't have the confidence to teach. I would say to jump in and teach. When I came out of my yoga teacher training, I challenged myself to teach 10 classes as soon as I could. Even if it was the same exact class that I had done for my solo, that is, was like my graduation graduation requirement, I just wanted to jump into the water. I wanted to I, be compassionate with myself. I knew I was gonna mess up, but I would say gently push yourself into doing it and get people around you that can help you. Stay in touch with your fellow students, stay in touch with the teachers that you really enjoy. And when we talk about in this book, how to be that yoga teacher, it's not how to be somebody else, it's how to be the seed of the teacher that you know that you have inside of you. And how can you work to bring all of these pillars together, all of your experience, all of your passion for how you wanna deliver this, how can you bring that out to be that yoga teacher. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, and I want to give you all permission to be bad at something. 
I think that's something that oftentimes when we leave yoga teacher training, you think you have to be as good as your teacher, your teacher who is teaching you, who's up in front of the room. They've had how many years of experience, you know, um, it's okay to just be okay at something, but do it. You have to do it. You just have to go <laughs> and do it over and over again and give yourself permission to just be okay incorporate all the things that Sherry and Lori have listed in this book and just go. I mean, it's a great job. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty great job. It is a great job. And the reason why I love being a yoga teacher is because I love yoga and I want to share that love with every person, whether it's on the mat or off the mat through this book, through what I say, I love yoga. I love integrating all of the aspects, not just the core work that we do, not just the poses. In fact, so much more than that. What, like Lori was saying, what brought me to my mat was the thought of, I want washboard abs. What keeps me at my mat is everything else. <laughs> yes. Thank you, sharing Lori, so much. I'm so grateful that you're here. It has been my pleasure to be here with you, Rebecca. And to your, to your listeners, I hope that you get some, um, some great benefits from this book and that it helps you take those steps forward with confidence, courage, ease, and grace. And it's now available on Amazon. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for um, hosting us today and letting us speak to your people. Thank you so much, Sherry and Lori, for coming on to talk about your methodology and give folks some guidance on what happens next after your yoga teacher training has ended. Here are my key takeaways. It is normal to want to learn more after you take a yoga teacher training program, especially if you don't think you're ready. But what makes an impactful teacher is someone who is able to listen to themselves and develop their inner skills before they go out into the world and share yoga. Find a friend in education whose profession it is to teach other people things. Ask them their favorite teaching methodologies and how to get better at the skill of teaching people a thing, anything. It is important for you to know what the laws are for employment wherever you live and to be committed to yourself as a yoga professional. Knowing the ins and outs of what it is to be a yoga professional is crucial for us as the next generation of yoga pros. And finally, Understanding and unpacking social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion is important work for us as yoga teachers. Learning from a diverse range and scope of teachers only serves to make you a more informed and impactful teacher. Thank you again for our sponsor, Sunlight Streams, and go snag your tickets to our virtual retreat at www.thesunlightexperience.com backslash online. We will see you next time. <laughs>